Hello, and welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about law in real life. I'm your host, Adeki Mehta, joined by the one, the only, Joe Fabush. Hey, Joe. That's quite the introduction. Thank you. So looking forward to this one. This is a contentious topic for us today. We love those. We yeah. Love those. Yeah, I, for sure. I don't know about you, Joe, but a conversation that keeps rearing its ugly head between Pretty much all of my friends is the albatross of the student loan debt. Mm-hmm. It's a perennial issue, really. It affects so many Americans. I mean, luckily for our international listeners, I think in general, like on average, most of you guys don't have it quite as bad as we do here just because it's so crazy expensive to go to school in the United States. And then you throw in the post-college stuff like maybe law school and a lot of folks feel like they'll never get out of this burden. So, yeah, this is a contentious topic for sure. People seem to be really divided on it. So much so that the Supreme Court is currently mulling over the very issue of loan forgiveness. Yeah. But I think uh, regardless of how you feel about whether there should or shouldn't be loan forgiveness, we can at least all agree that it's something that's going to affect a lot of young Americans. Yeah. I mean, if it doesn't affect you directly, it certainly has affected a family member or friends are still paying it off. So yeah, huge issue. Huge issue and long time coming. So yeah, currently Supreme Court is uh, sort of brooding over that. They recently heard oral arguments about a couple cases that involve student loan forgiveness. And I'll just catch y'all up on what's going on. Well, let's backtrack to firstly, what are student loans and how are they governed, right? Because that's a, that's something that I have really wasn't clear on for a long time. <laughs> uh, still kind of murky on it. It's complicated. Um, well, so the Department of Education, which is a federal agency, and I note that because it'll be important later, uh, they administer federal student aid programs under Title IV of the Higher Education Act of 1965. And this involves a couple of different types of loans. Um, namely, there's like the direct loan program, which, you know, how it sounds, the federal government lends money directly to student borrowers. And then there's like family education loans and Perkins loans. And both of those are like, Non-federal lenders issue loans to student borrowers on terms that the federal government sets. And um, new loans aren't being issued under these last two anymore, but there's still a bunch of prior loans that remain outstanding. So they're still involved. There's so much money at stake. There's so many people involved here. Currently, there are over 43 million borrowers with outstanding loans um, under a combo of these different programs. And their debts total approximately $1.63 trillion, with a T, dollars. Well, and it, it overtook credit card debt a couple years ago, right, as the number one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is more people owe money on student loans than people owe. In aggregate, at least, than they owe on credit card debt. I don't know. Like, it's, it feels like one step forward, two steps back with, <laughs> with different debt problems. So good for the credit card people, I guess. But now we have a new issue. Um, and so, okay, so the Higher Education Act basically governs all of this. And it it charges the Secretary of Education, who's, you know, like in charge of the Department of Education, it charges that secretary with um, carrying out federal student loan aid programs and then also gives the secretary 
substantial, quote, powers and responsibilities. And part of this act, these sort of powers include um, explicitly the power to, quote, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, unquote, acquired in part of the loan forgiveness management. Can you go back? Because I want to make sure that I understand that. It's in this text that the secretary can waive student loans? Yeah, it's explicitly in the text of the Higher Education Act that the secretary, in the course of carrying out its responsibilities and like governing loans, it can waive, release, compromise any like right title, claim, lien, or demand. So this like pretty, you know, it's it seems like a pretty clear reading that this this includes like the right to potentially forgive loans, although that's that's definitely a question that people are still asking and um, seem to still disagree on. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just it's an important point that it's, yeah, it, that it's, it's in it, yeah that is that is explicitly in the text of the act, and so. And then the HEROES Act, which we will get into in a second, also also notes explicitly in its text that the secretary is not required to exercise these sort of modifications or forgivenesses on a case-by-case basis. So b- meaning that it can, the secretary can, can, can dole out relief en masse to, to many borrowers at a time. We, we can get into a little bit of the history about how the secretary has governed loans under its authority, under these acts. There's been a lot of instances in the past where the secretary has discharged debts that were owed by student loan borrowers. And mm-hmm. many of them were in substantial amounts. And again, because it doesn't have to be on a case-by-case basis, the secretary has issued class-wide loan forgivenesses because, I mean, like that's way more efficient. In, in ways, right, than, than, than considering every case by case. The most recent example, which is during the pandemic, of course, yeah. student loans were deferred. Uh, can you imagine going on a case-by-case basis? To, right. Yeah. That's why we have, I mean, we, we have, the government has limited manpower bandwidth. For, for sake of efficiency, stuff wouldn't get done um, if we did everything on a case-by-case basis. And I'll also note that the secretary doesn't always act alone. So Congress is involved in this, too. Usually Congress gets involved in reaction to some national crisis event, i.e. the pandemic. But not necessarily like that's this is stuff that's happened in other sort of national crises before. And often if there's a crisis, Congress will pass additional laws to give the secretary additional power to do more than just the Higher Education Act lets it do. And so a good example is in 1991, um, around the time the Persian Gulf conflict was going on, Congress passed a law that authorized the secretary to modify or waive federal student loans as necessary to ensure like that those people serving on active duty in connection with Operation Desert Storm, that they were, quote, not placed in a worse position financially. You'll see that language in a lot of these acts yeah. um, because of their military service. Yeah, the idea is you don't want to punish veterans who come home after serving their country and then suddenly they've got backlog student loans and they can't afford to pay them. And so the idea is to protect the service members, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and Congress has to pass these sort of additional acts because the original Higher Education Act doesn't give the secretary as much power as they might need for this. 
Okay, so similarly, so what is the Biden administration trying to do here? Uh, and under what authority? Well, the HEROES Act, which is a buzzword that some of you guys might have heard, you know, related to the COVID uh, student loan forgiveness plans over the past couple of years. The HEROES Act isn't actually even that new. Um, it dates back to 2001, um, and it was created in response to the September 11th terrorist attacks. And similarly to the, the Persian Gulf crisis, Congress enacted the HEROES Act, which stands for Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act. Love me a good backronym. <laughs> <laughs> Not um, as much as Congress does. I know, right? I mean, it's it's cute, right? It's very patriotic. <laughs> yeah. um, it basically, this act basically did the same thing that the Persian Gulf law did, but in relation to 9-11. So mm-hmm. the original Heroes Act was meant to be temporary, but it's it's been extended a couple of times. And then finally, it was made permanent in 2007. So that's why it's still kind of large and in charge here. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, in 2003, Congress expanded it substantially, too, uh, not just extended the time. So they expanded it to have more functionality. And and, and that version, the expanded version, is the statute that the Biden administration has been relying on as support for their authority to forgive loans. And under that version, in the most recent version of the HEROES Act, Debt relief isn't limited to borrowers affected by terrorist attacks or, you know, of course, we wouldn't be debating this. Uh, Instead, it authorizes uh, a broader power, a a waiver or modification, quote, as the secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. That is keywords right there. (laughs) That seems a little vague. What is a national emergency? Well, so sort of fortunately, okay, and I say this because a lot of acts just like throw out vague words and don't define them in the act. And they like, then you get into this whole rabbit hole of constitutional interpretation where you have to look at another statute that Congress has passed in the in the past that uses that same phrase. And you're like, okay, well, maybe they mean this. We, we don't really have to do that here because fortunately they do define some terms. So this act allows the secretary to waive, modify federal student loans in furtherance of certain objectives. Okay, so here's where it gets kind of annoying. The first objective, since okay. you since you called out some stuff for being vague, Joe. All right, let's hear obje- it. <laughs> the first objective is that student loan recipients, quote, who are affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals, unquote. Okay, that's not helpful. That's that's not, no. But I do recognize the language a little bit, right? They kind of copied themselves a little bit yeah. in that definition. But yeah, that's very circular. Yes, yes. But like I said, it does set out definitions of these vague terms that we've been encountering. Okay. So, it defines, the HEROES Act itself defines affected individual to include any individual who, oh man, another quote, resides or is employed in an area that is declared a disaster area by any federal, state, or local official in connection with a national emergency, unquote, or who suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a national emergency. And now to answer your question about, well, what's a national emergency? Okay, the same act defines national emergency as, quote, 
any national emergency declared by the president of the United States, unquote. Okay, was that helpful? I'm not sure. Well, let me let me see if I can paraphrase that in English, right? So yes. basically, <laughs> the president gets to decide what is and is not a national emergency. Is that what yeah. the statute is saying? That's that's what it's literally saying. Um, and then and it's saying that affected individuals are anybody who's economically hurt by this presidentially declared national mm-hmm. emergency. Right. And so how does that apply in the context of COVID? Yeah. How do you put that together, Joe? Oh, is this a test? All right. Yes. Conlock quiz, quiz 101. Pop quiz. I like it. Well, it would seem to me that quite a few people were economically harmed by the COVID pandemic, which was a presidentially declared national emergency. So I'm guessing that the Biden administration's argument is that this was a national emergency under the definition of the statute. The affected individuals were the people who were harmed by the pandemic, i.e. everyone. And that's why he has the authority or the Secretary of Education has the authority to forgive student loans. Well, here's the sort of weird thing, that that people seem to make this whole student loan thing a, a, a Biden administration thing, but actually the national emergency was originally declared by President Trump at the beginning of COVID in 2020, because remember, Trump was... Mm-hmm. Trump was in charge then. Then President Trump declared a national emergency due to the pandemic. And the then Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, invoked the HEROES Act to Mm -hmm. pause repayment obligations and suspend interest uh, accrual on all such loans. And these these policies were then later extended by the Trump administration and then later extended by the Biden administration. So that's where Biden has gotten involved. But he wasn't even the original person to apply. No, yeah, that that's a fair point. But that is yeah. the Biden administration's argument, because presumably he also has to be arguing that it was a national emergency. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be kind of their point is that the HEROES Act explicitly authorizes this and... No, totally. And like, I just I just bring this up because it's people seem to be painting this as a a partisan issue. But like it has been used by Democrats and Republicans alike in recent presidential Mm -hmm. history, recent administrations. And it's not this is not this is not really like a a novel thing that Biden is necessarily trying to do in using the HEROES Act to forgive student loans for COVID. That makes sense. It almost sounds um, like you're suggesting politics might play a role in some of this. Oh man, how do we? How do we? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna skirt that one, right? Because <laughs> nonpartisan podcast, y'all. But it's but it's there's a lot of money at stake, even with this recent use of it in COVID. Because as of as of a year ago, the so not even now, like I can't even imagine what it is now. But as of what spring of 2022. Uh, the payment pause was estimated to have cost the federal government $102 billion. And that's just from this COVID pause. From the deferments, um, yeah. From Yeah, yeah. And so, so all that is to say, for whatever reason, now there are all these suits that are uh, finally sort of getting addressed by the Supreme Court. And they can sort of be summed up by... Two lawsuits that are that are sort of like sister lawsuits that have been heard recently, an oral argument by the Supreme Court, been pending for a couple of years in other courts. And those two suits are 
Biden v. Nebraska and the Department of Education v. Brown. And I'll just sort of sum up a little bit of the facts of each one real quick. Okay, so in Biden v. Nebraska, uh, almost kind of a misnomer because there was way more involved than just Nebraska. It was actually brought by a number of states, uh, namely Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, South Carolina, and of course, Nebraska. And so this group of states basically collectively challenged the Biden administration's loan forgiveness program. And at lower court, so the federal district court, the trial court, dismissed the challenge that the states were bringing. They dismissed it on the basis of standing, which we will totally get into in a minute. Uh, Hold off on that. And the judge reasoned that the states basically weren't hurt by the plan and therefore had no basis to bring a lawsuit. And then... The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals put the ruling ruling on hold. It made its way up to the Supreme Court. That's that's one big case. The other big case um, was different in a significant way in that it wasn't brought by states or governments. Uh, it was actually brought by students. So this this one's called the Department of Education v. Brown, and it was brought by plaintiffs who were individual borrowers i.e. students. And they argue that the Biden administration improperly implemented the program, the loan forgiveness program, because it did not allow for a public comment period before it went into effect. Um, now, there is a catch. Well, let's, oh, sorry, go well, ahead. Just I think we should clarify. Yeah. So most federal regulations and rules have a public yep. comment where anybody can go in and say this is a terrible idea or. Yeah think about this, do this instead. Um, and they totally. didn't do that in this case. And, 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 and usually it applies to federal agencies. And remember, that's the Department of Education, which the Secretary of Education is, is doing the actions, but he's part of the Department of Education. And that's the federal agency. And agencies generally have to allow for a public notice and comment period before they um, promulgate <laughs> before they before they enact a statute. Isn't administrative law so much fun? Oh man, I got in trouble for using that word on, on air <laughs> a minute ago, so I had to had to do a throwback there. Um, but okay, so in the case of the the students' case, Brown Department of Education v. Brown, there's there's a catch here uh, because the two students bringing this case, there's two students, Myra Brown and Alexander Taylor, and these students weren't actually really technically directly affected by the act or by the loan forgiveness itself. So Myra Brown, in her case, she didn't actually have federal loans at all. She had private loans, but she brought suit complaining that she was ineligible for the loan forgiveness program because her loans weren't federal. And the other student, Taylor, um, was also technically not directly affected by the loan forgiveness program because he didn't have what's called a Pell Grant, which I I think you have to have like a Pell Grant in order to be eligible for the loan forgiveness. It's another, it's a type of federal grant um, that you need for the program. Yeah, the Pell Grant, if you had one, it's for low-income students. And if you had a Pell Grant, you would be eligible for $20,000. Right. And otherwise you were eligible for 10 grants. So he was eligible for the 10 grant, but not for the 20 grant. Yes, okay, okay, correct. Um, And- so yeah, then he was challenging the plan on the on the grounds that he was ineligible for the higher amount being yep. waived. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Um, whereas Myra just wasn't eligible at all. Yep. Uh, Myra Brown. So the the federal district judge at trial overturned the policy, ruling that the Biden administration exceeded its authority 
in implementing the program. I think it was a separation of powers kind of thing. And this base, this ruling blocked the loan forgiveness program from, from being implemented. I will note that the district judge here ruled on the merits of the case instead of determining the preliminary issue of whether the borrowers had standing to even bring the lawsuit in the first place, which, again, we keep encountering this issue of of standing. So we should get into that real soon, right? I mean, one of the first things that every Supreme Court case does is say this person has standing for the following reasons. Yeah. And, and so we keep encountering this. And so both of these cases make their way up to the Supreme Court. And both of these cases have a lot in common in terms of two main issues of standing. And as we'll talk about, as you'll talk about later, Joe, the major questions doctrine. Mm-hmm. But but standing, like what we've we've talked about this on other podcasts before. It's ubiquitous. And why? Because it's not like some coincidence because you need standing to bring any lawsuit. It's like a preliminary requirement to bring a suit. So it's an area that you'll see frequently challenged by by the party that's getting sued because it could be an easy low-hanging fruit if they were able to show that there's no standing, that they don't even have to address the merits of Mm -hmm. the legal case. If there's no standing, you don't have to talk about, oh, does the Biden administration even have the power to forgive loans? You have to get to there if there's no standing. So it's like going to a baseball game and saying the other team is disqualified. Yeah, it's a dis- exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a DQ. Yeah. Um, so basically, to remind you guys, standing is a constitutional doctrine that makes sure that both or you know, sometimes there's more than one, that all of the people in a lawsuit actually have concrete interests in the litigation. So you can't just sue someone willy nilly because you don't like the cut of their jib. Um, <laughs> I, maybe you don't like their political idea. I don't even know. I don't even know. But you have to show that they actually hurt you like in the past are hurting you or will likely hurt you if like soon if if the court doesn't intervene. If you can't show this is the harm requirement, that's what it's called. If you can't show this harm requirement, you lack standing to sue and the court has to dismiss your case, even if what you are actually trying to argue is a good argument. Yeah, and it can't be some kind of vague, like, this will hurt my sensibilities, or in the far future, some random thing may happen. Uh, yeah. It has to be like, okay, this happens, so you're immediately hurt because of yeah. They mm. they'll refer to that as like concrete standing, right? Yeah. It can't just be something sort of abstract, or this could happen, or like this far into the future kind of thing. It has to yeah. be like, pretty likely to happen, and yeah. Not too hypothetical. So exactly, which is relevant here, as we'll get into. So, mm-hmm. um, so let's talk about standing in in each of the cases. So, in in the Biden v. Nebraska case, remember that's the one where it was this group of states that's bringing lawsuit. Originally, so the federal government basically countered that the states weren't harmed by the student debt relief program because the states themselves weren't harmed; they lack standing. So, in response, the states argued that they were harmed. Because this entity called Mohila, which is, <laughs> yeah, uh, I love, I love the it. flair you put on that. That's great. <laughs> M-O-H-L-E-A, all caps, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. And it's got the word Missouri in it, which might confuse you into thinking that it's like a state program or a government entity. But it's 
it's only like at most a quasi-governmental entity. It's a student loan servicer that's incorporated in Missouri, and and but it services loans in other states too. And it's basically a private entity with a little bit of gray area, uh, quasi-governmental entity. And basically the states were arguing that they were harmed because this mohila um, stood to lose money that it would otherwise receive on interest on loans because the interests were uh, suspended. I do want to point out here because I think, at least for me, the natural question is, well, I mean, that seems like a good argument, right? Because mm-hmm. of course they would be harmed by forgiving student loans because they won't get get the money. Now, they absolutely mm-hmm. have the right to sue, don't they? Totally. Yeah. But that's not yep. what's happening here. No, Mohila isn't suing. Mohila could totally sue or show up like the states could have the the states could have like brought this suit and like convinced mohila to join them and then there wouldn't be any issue because yeah no one's contesting whether or not mohila was harmed Uh, again mohila is the actual company that's issuing the loans Mm -hmm. but i guess the states couldn't convince mohila to join and so the standing argument the issue kind of all revolved around mohila's relationship with the state Mohila is incorporated under state law, but it's legally separate from the state. And it has as it has the capacity to sue or be sued in its own right. And like you said, Joe, it could have brought suit and then there wouldn't be this issue. But since Mohila wasn't suing or even part of the suit, the issue is not whether Mohila suffered harm, but whether the states could sue on its behalf, i.e. whether the states had suffered harm through Mohila. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what the what the court goes back and forth with the parties on, like, are you really affected? And like, we don't need to go into that whole rabbit hole. But, yeah, but I mean, like, they spend a lot of time on that oral arguments about what does this institution owe Missouri? How is it right. governed? You know, so there's, a, so there's some gray area, but that's kind of where there's some room for disagreement as to totally. how much is this an actual state entity and how much is it like any number of organizations that might vaguely be affiliated with the state? Um, you know, I'm thinking of like a public university or something like that, you know, which Mm -hmm. can be sued on its own and sue other things on it as its own. Is that really part of the state, you know? And that's, that's a great point because as the, as the federal government attorney brings up, this turns into a slippery slope really fast. If the court says, okay, well, this counts, this counts as the the government being harmed just because one of their uh, loan issuers was harmed. Well, okay, fine. But like, at what point do you draw the line? Because a slippery slope argument being that at some point everybody is somehow implicated in something. So then the standing requirement becomes toothless, mm-hmm. right? That again, I'm I'm just I'm just regurgitating what the party said. I'm not even <laughs> um no stakes here. Um so so but that but 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 that really tells you about how gosh, like they, they just spent like forever uh debating the issue of standing because it's such a powerful and important issue and requirement that the entire case could be thrown out on. And so similarly, the other suit, uh, Department of Education v. Brown, the suit brought by the two students, there was also a standing issue there. And there, the students are basically complaining that the program that they're challenging, they have to show that they were harmed, right? They're basically complaining that the program they're challenging, the student loan forgiveness program, doesn't go far enough and could have expanded eligibility to include them because they were left out. So 
the harm that they claim is basically that they should have gotten more. And if the Department of Education had followed this proper procedure of the notice and comment period, it's possible that they would have gotten more. What's the issue here? I will note that this notice and comment period, which we've talked about, it's often required for agency action, except the HEROES Act itself explicitly exempts the secretary to go through the notice and comment process, which is theoretically what makes their argument really weak, right? Yeah, we talked briefly about future harm and speculative. So Mm -hmm. basically, the argument that the Department of Education is saying is that, hey, look, let's say Brown does win and our program is done. He's not really affected, right? If anything, his situation is made worse. And they're saying, because then he won't even get his, because then he won't get his 10 grand. And And they're saying that Myra, who, was not eligible at all, isn't changed at all. And part of the requirements for standing is what's called a redressable injury. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you do win, you're made better by winning, right? Yeah, made whole again, or at least improved, right? Yeah. And so what they're arguing, why they have standing is they're saying, well, look, we think it was done unfairly and if the department of education comes back and opens up a commenting period Mm -hmm. etc etc we might end up being eligible so the issue is is that too speculative is that too far in the future because you know there's no guarantees on any of that so that's kind of the main argument against standing for them. Totally and 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 again the way that this notice and comment period is supposed to work is like Theoretically, like before you pass, let's say the Biden administration was thinking about this loan forgiveness thing. They allow this public notice and comment period. Possibly, theoretically, it could have changed if they had had this opportunity to comment on it. It could have changed to be more inclusive of students like Brown and and Taylor. And the problem is twofold, though. One is that, like I said, the statute explicitly exempts the secretary from going through this notice and comment period. And it does that for the purpose of expediting this loan forgiveness in a national emergency, right? A notice and comment period takes time. The the exemption allows for the secretary to act efficiently and help more people out ASAP rather than going through this very timely process. Mm -hmm. But the other issue, as you brought up, Joe, is that the students are saying that if the Biden administration hadn't pursued this loan forgiveness program, or at least had gone through the notice comment period, it might have gone another route and enacted another statute that would include them. But remember, they're not actually affected by this statute in its current form at all. That's why their argument is, like you said, speculative for the purposes of standing. They're basically saying we're harmed even though we aren't directly affected by this loan forgiveness program because maybe if you hadn't used this program, you would have set up a more inclusive program that made us eligible. And in my opinion, that seems a little too hypothetical a harm that's sufficient for standing, but that that's an issue for the court. Is this too abstract or hypothetical? Yeah, that's often an issue in standing. So up till now, guys, in both in both cases, we've been talking about standing and have not even gotten into the merits of either case, really, because 
the merits are basically what like the actual legal argument is, um, the, the reasoning that, that, that the parties are challenging bringing suit. Standing is not the merits, but standing is important because it'll throw your case out before you even the judges aren't even allowed to get to the merits, really. Right. Or, or not allowed to decide on the merits if you don't have standing. So let's say let's let's say standing is resolved. Right. Let's get into the actual merits, a.k.a. the meat and potatoes of the case. What's that, Joe? I do want to get a little inside baseball just because I think sometimes people like hearing about the different strategies. Mm -hmm. So I was basically regurgitating the Department of Education's arguments about standing, right? And Mm -hmm. talking about how speculative it was. They're not really going hard on the merits, even though theoretically they could. But I think the strategy for the Department of Education is to say, I think we're going to have a better chance if they just throw it out and don't even get to the major questions doctrine. And so that's why they're really focusing on that is because they think with the Supreme Court as it is with um, mostly Republican appointed justices, Mm -hmm. the Biden administration's approach is saying like, well, look, we've occasionally got them to dodge questions uh, if if it's appropriate to do so. So there's a little bit of strategery going on. Strategery. To, to use an old an old word. I know that's not a real word, but I love I it. I love it. But that's why they're throwing, that's why they're, they're putting all their muscle into the not merits, the yeah. requirements. Yeah, because then, and, and then really the Supreme Court doesn't have to decide anything Mm-hmm. Presidential, except uh, not presidential, but presidential. <laughs> presidential with a C. Yeah, um, except for as it relates to standing. And so then this major questions doctrine can just be entirely sidestepped. The court loves to do this because, like, it's any, any court is technically supposed to avoid answering questions when it doesn't have to because they can be contentious and they can mm-hmm. lose a lot of the country one side or the other's popularity. So the the courts like regardless of whether you're democrat leaning or republican leaning, you don't want to answer questions unless you absolutely have to because you're going to make enemies of somebody. Oh yeah, one one of the <laughs> most useful skills any appellate judge has is ducking, right? I mean Oh like- yeah. So the standing thing total cop out, but <laughs> This happens all the time. Yeah. It should surprise nobody. And so <laughs> I guess the, the, the Biden administration is leaning into the cop-out yeah, tactic that courts exactly. like to do in order to get this thrown out, both of these cases thrown out. Yep. But let's say that the justices do determine that one or more of the plaintiffs do have standing. Not all of them have to have standing, Yeah, by great the way. point. These are two different cases, but they both challenge some of the same merits. So... Even if one case didn't have standing, okay, that case would be thrown out, but the question would still have to be addressed in the other mm-hmm. case that did have standing. So it just takes one. Yep. Yep. So let's say that they overcome this question, which is a very reasonable thing to hypothesize at this point. They may very mm-hmm. well say that one or both parties have standing. So then it gets to this question about the separation of powers that you were talking about with the district court decision. Mm-hmm. And that is really what the plaintiffs in the case are going for is this major questions doctrine. So what is the major questions doctrine? We like to go in the way back machine. We do not need to do that. All we (laughs) need to do is go way back to about eight months ago. Uh, The theory has been 
around for longer than that, of course. Right. But, it, but it was first mentioned by name in a case called West Virginia B V E P A. And Oh, which we covered in I, I covered that in a podcast. Yeah. Oh man, it's been a minute. I know. So we'll go, we'll back, go back to and, season three, you guys. <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna get too much into that case, but basically it was a climate question about how much authority the EPA had to regulate climate emissions. So basically what the majority said in that case is that under the major questions doctrine, there's a reason for Supreme Court justices to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer this kind of authority to a federal agency without being very clear and very specific that it intended to do so. Okay. So you're exactly right. It's a little bit, it's it's kind of a cousin to the non-delegation doctrine, which does go way back. And that's about like how much authority federal agencies have to issue regulations on all of these matters. As Andy would say, if he were here, <laughs> Congress loves to give authority to federal agencies and say, here, this is the issue. You go and solve the problem. Oh, they love to delegate, right? Yeah. So uh, the question, I mean, it the non-delegation doctrine is essentially dead. It hasn't been used since the 30s, but this is a similar argument. And mm -hmm. it's saying that, look, this is a pretty big deal. We're talking about billions of dollars or trillions yeah, of dollars right yeah this is a again it's about an agency action that has a significant impact on the economy right exactly yeah yeah thank you so we're talking about all this money that's affecting 43 million americans potentially and all of these companies in the student loan game this is a pretty big deal so yeah. did congress really intend to give the current department of education authority to just forgive loans. And as you've gone back, I mean, there is definitely a basis for it in the statutory text, right? I mean, they're not mm -hmm. pulling it out of thin air. But the question is, if it's such a big deal, did they really intend to do it this much? Or yeah. did they yeah. just say like, okay, we're talking about helping veterans or first responders mm -hmm. or people, you know, floods and fires and things of that nature? Were they really yeah, talking I mean, about a countrywide pandemic? Now that we are talking about trillions with a T of dollars at stake, pretty strong argument that this is a major question in terms of this has a huge impact on the economy, right? And even though the ex the text explicitly says that Congress is allowed to do this, this, and this, and you know, forego the notice and comment period and all that, did did Congress anticipate that that this much money would be at stake in mm -hmm. the Secretary's exercises of its authority? Right? Is that what you're getting at, Joe? And specifically, so that you know, I can't believe I'm bringing up Chevron in in a podcast, <laughs> but but basically in in analyzing interpretations of statutes passed by Congress. There's a question of how much courts should defer to agency interpretations mm -hmm. of that. So, you know, if you're an agency head and you say, look, Congress totally gave me the authority to do this because I want to do it and I'm going to read it like this way, courts will sometimes say, okay, well, how much should we actually take into account this federal agency's interpretation? 
how much— Because it seems biased in their favor, right? Like, of course. Yeah, and so that gets into the whole Chevron line of cases, which I, I don't want to get into. But <laughs> it, it, that's going to be the question that I think, if it gets to the merits, I think that's going to be the issue that the case resolves around. The major questions doctrine, again, is, is surrounding concerns of separation of powers, right? Because— like the whole reason we don't want to give too much power to a, a particular agency or the Biden administration is if you know if if you if you delegate too much, well then this is that the agency is 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 getting powers of Congress rather than the powers of the executive, which it's technically supposed to be. Yeah, because federal agencies are of course a part of the executive branch, and the idea is that you're taking too much power for the executive branch and not giving enough to members of Congress to pass laws. Mm-hmm. Although it gets even further complicated because Congress itself has the power to give the secretary more. Or, I mean, like Congress itself kept passing more statutes to expand and extend the timeline for these mm-hmm. Education Acts and Heroes Acts. So I don't know. That might be an argument that Congress intended this because they kept expanding it. So who knows? Yeah, and we could get into the whole. We could get into that forever. Yeah. Dysfunction of Congress. I mean, <laughs> where's Andy when you need I him? I know this is definitely uh, an issue. If Andy were keep... here, he would have never let us go on about standing for that long. He would have been like, <laughs> "Yawn." <laughs> that's true, but it is important to know. Mm-hmm. Actually, it, it's a common thing that's popping up. A lot of people are thinking about the separation of powers and thinking about this Chevron line of cases and they're thinking about the non-delegation doctrine. You know, recently I wrote a blog about the Fifth Circuit actually cited something called a private non-delegation doctrine Mm. when overturning a statute passed by Congress. So there's a little, and and it certainly is a an issue that you can find more about on the internet if you're so inclined. I'll I'll put it that Mm -hmm. way. It's a hot topic. But it's it's hot topic. It's contentious for some reason. It's partisan. I don't really truly understand why. But um, yeah, politics can't can't hard to keep that out of it too. I mean, Democrats largely support the relief program. It seems Re- generally Republicans seem to oppose it. We'll note that the states that challenge the program in both cases are led by Republicans, and the federal judge who struck down the program was appointed by Republican. And the the the, the circuit judges who put the dismissal for lack of standing on hold, appointed by Republicans. Supreme Court seems to be, people are perceiving it to be split on ideological grounds, um, but maybe a slight majority with conservatives, right? And and that's going to implicate this case. Um, it's, I don't know, it could go either way, but standing will be a significant hurdle. And, and, and ideologically, the court is split on standing too. So... Well, conservative judges take standing very seriously. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 If if I were a betting man, and and I am, (laughs) um, (laughs) if it gets past standing, I would almost certainly say that the justices would be likely to invoke the major questions doctrine Mm -hmm. if it gets past standing. I think if the Department of Education does end up keeping it forward, it will be decided on that issue of standing if it gets to the merits, I think. The Department of Education will probably have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, well, stay tuned to the end of June, folks, because uh, I guess the court will have to make up 
decisions, whether or not on major questions, TBD, uh, in the next couple of months. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.